is still prone to a lot of flaws, a lot of errors. I mean, Ethereum is still trying to figure out what kind of protocol it wants to be and how to go about it. And so to me, there's a lot of these cryptos that promise new and exciting things, but it's not even the same sphere of competition of Bitcoin. Bitcoin has proven itself time and time again, and nothing has really lived up to that. So even if a new alternative cryptocurrency or DeFi currency is very popular in outpacing Bitcoin, to me, that's not necessarily winning. It's winning a battle, but not necessarily the war or the overall picture. Welcome to the Will and Lee Show. Hi, this is Will Chang. And as always, I have my co-host, Andrew Sue with me. Yo, what's up? Over the last 13 years, there have been three distinct waves of people onboarded into crypto. Each wave discovered crypto for different reasons. The first wave was when Bitcoin went up to $1,000, peaking in the winter of 2013. Bitcoin was a reaction to the financial crisis. And this first wave was driven by individual sovereignty. The second wave happened four years later in 2017 when Ethereum went up to $1,000 and Bitcoin went up to $20,000. This second wave was very excited about blockchain as a technology platform. And the third wave is happening four years later right now, where people are very excited about DeFi yield and NFT communities. I've realized that in our Web3 series, we haven't really talked about Bitcoin. So today I'm bringing on a good friend, Sean Reed, as a representation of that first wave so we can understand how it all started. Sean started getting involved in Bitcoin in 2011 as a professional poker player. He helped start OpenNode, a Bitcoin payment processor that allows companies like Shopify, Substack, and McDonald's accept Bitcoin payments. Welcome, Sean. Hey, thanks, Will. Hi, Andrew. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. Before we get started in Bitcoin, I wanted to go through your journey all the way to when you discovered Bitcoin. And I think that journey starts when we started playing professional poker. So when did you start getting into poker? Yeah, so I started getting into poker around high school. I had a good friend, Luis. We started around the same time, but we had a statistics class. And essentially, our teacher was really chill with whatever he did, as long as we did well on the test. So pretty much every day, like half the class would split up into a group and would play poker. And Luis and I ended up having tons of success. We'd always come up on top. And so, yeah, we just wanted to dive deeper into that and see if there was uh, any potential there to make profit playing. Poker is a game that analyzes statistics and math, but also psychology. And human behavior is something that has always fascinated me and has kind of driven me throughout my life, trying to understand why we make the decisions we do. So a lot of game theory, a lot of psychology, and a lot of math. And uh, yeah, it's just what fascinates me. And that's what drove me to poker. You played poker in high school and got really into it. How did you get more serious about it? So yeah, my friend and I, Luis, we started online with some mixed success and just as fun and a hobby. But we started talking about poker more seriously, maybe three or four hours every day, just really trying to understand the game, the math, the psychology. We'd go over different hands we played and tried and just try to study the game theory behind it. And after graduating high school and starting college for a couple of years, the success eventually started being more successful and kind of started considering whether or not this would make sense to try full time and really see what I can do. So that was kind of the progression. And eventually, I decided to drop out of college and pursue poker full time. At what point did you decide to drop out full time? How much were you playing? Like, what was that life like? So I was still maintaining all my classes and playing poker just in all the downtime. And eventually, I started a the lowest stakes, which I think was like $10 buy-in. And just every time I'd make anywhere from like 20 to 50 times for whatever the maximum buy-in for the next stake was, I would move up. And so I moved up from $10 to $20. And then I think I was playing around a $200 or $400 buy-in. And by that time, it was kind of more serious money. So yeah, part of it too was that in college, I reached this point where I wasn't really sure what I was going to school for. And I was a pre-med major and really interested in medicine and biology. But at the same time, it didn't really feel like it was a natural fit for me. And so I started to evaluate like, hey, what does it mean to make money? What does it mean to live in society? And essentially going to school, trying to get this prestige, trying to get a prestigious job, trying to do something that's making a difference. I realized it was kind of everything that society expected of me, what my parents were hoping I would do, the path they laid out for me. And I never really thought what actually makes me happy or what kind of control or what I want to focus on in my life. And so poker was kind of this outlet that, hey, if I can sustain myself financially, I also gain this sense of freedom 
that I don't have from going maybe down this more traditional stable path. But as long as I can support myself and I stay disciplined, I reach this sense of autonomy that I wouldn't have otherwise. What was your mental calculus on you being comfortable that you were making enough via poker? Was it X times your buy-in or was it just knowing how much you were pulling in? What was it? It was more, can I sustain this? Can I sustain positive EV over a large sample size? And pretty much didn't matter what stake I was playing. I just had this assumption that as long as I'm get enough hands and repetitions in and I'm beating the EV graph, then I will always be able to make money or be profitable. And so there wasn't really a set amount that I arrived on. Ideally, I wanted to try and clear six figures a year. And that was like my benchmarking goal. But I wouldn't say it was the huge focus. I also was able to play anywhere from like 24 to 32 tables at once. So I was really able to test my new strategies very quickly and build up that large sample size. So very quickly, I understood if like, hey, I'm profitable or I'm not, something needs to be adjusted. So I was able to get in a lot more volume than maybe most people trying out poker would be able to get. And that reaffirmed like, hey, over this large sample size, I'm doing well. And yeah, I want to see how far I can push it. Was your sample size days or was it number of hands? And how big was that sample size that made you confident? Yeah, it was a number of hands. And some days before I dropped out, I think the max I would play would be like 8 to 12 hours in a day. After I dropped out and was playing more full time, some sessions went like 30 or 40 hours straight without a break. It just depended how good the games were. But yeah, for me, it was more just hitting a set amount of hands and knowing, okay, most people who play in casinos, most people are trying this, you know, maybe they'll reach 10,000 hands a month or something. And so for me, it'd be like, I'm hitting like 50,000 hands a month or some astronomical number. I think over my whole career, it's over 10 million hands played, which is pretty unreal for uh, most people who don't play online or don't play high volume. We were in around this, we went to college around the same time. And I remember during college, there was this online poker boom. And everyone was into online poker. I remember the World Series poker tournament had online poker players. Can you tell us about that time? Were you part of that online poker movement? Oh, man. I was a little behind it. But yeah, I was definitely paying attention to the boom. Chris Moneymaker, just this amateur poker player. He won a free roll that got him a seat in the main event, World Series event. And he ended up winning the whole thing, which I think the prize pool at that time was a million for first. And that just inspired this huge wave of people. Every amateur player thought, hey, I have a shot at being successful. And yeah, it really did start the poker boom. So I was definitely paying attention as it was happening. I was definitely playing, but I I don't think I was quite full-time professional when it first started. So I kind of got in a little late after the wave boomed, but yeah, definitely was able to take advantage of some of it. After the wave boom, something happened, right? Basically, I think I got banned. Is that right? Yeah. So in the poker world, uh, we call this Black Friday, I believe it was uh, April 2011. And essentially, the Department of Justice, they shut down the three biggest poker sites. They claim money laundering, fraud, and just gambling in the US. I can't remember all the reasons. I think it was just George Bush signed a bill that his lobby pushed and made everyone happy. So um, yeah, it was a very dark day and essentially locked me out of, uh, locked me out of a lot of my funds and my livelihood to make a living. So you had money on all these poker sites. And You had just quit college. How long were you in college? Did you quit college for at this point? Yeah, so that's a good question. I can't remember exactly when I dropped out. I want to say it was maybe only like a year or so. But yeah, definitely. (laughs) And it was funny too, because right before Black Friday, I had my most successful months, like my most successful two or three months. I was finally playing much bigger stakes, making serious money. And was like, man, I made the right decision. I'm in a good place. It's all good. And then... uh, yeah, when it got banned, it was, it was definitely scary and had to reevaluate quickly like, hey, do I go back to school? Or if I want to keep playing poker, what does that look like? So what did that look like? So initially, I was a strictly online player, tried a few times at casinos, never really enjoyed it. Uh, my friend Luis, who we got into poker together, he was more of a casino focused player. So him and I, we ended up traveling around. We lived in Florida for a little bit. We lived in Vegas, just wherever there were good casino games. And I tried that for a year, playing at casinos, seeing if I could still make a living playing poker in the casinos. Basically, after that year, I would say that I was not as successful. It was much more slow and tiring. And I just, I didn't really like the casino lifestyle. So to continue playing, what a lot of other players had done is they moved out of the country to anywhere outside the US where poker wasn't illegal. Also, while I was playing some of these live games, I was playing a little bit on the side, but there was a Bitcoin poker website where if you're in the US, you could 
I don't know if it was technically illegal or not, but there were quite a few people who were playing on this Bitcoin poker site. So I was doing that to help some of the downtime when I wasn't playing casino games too. So what was Bitcoin like at that time? Like, what did you see Bitcoin as? What was the price like? What did people think about it? Oh, man. Yeah, Bitcoin was this wild, mean currency that some people thought it was cool. I remember when I first found out about it, I was completely mesmerized by what the technology is. It really blew my mind. But I would say the general consensus was uninterested, but it was cool. It was like a cool experiment, a cool technology, a cool idea. And people were interested, but not not on a large scale by any means. Was it hard to gain confidence in the Bitcoin poker game? So... I've been super drawn to technology from a very young age. I've grew up with it, always building my computers. I think my dad helped me build my first computer at age five. And so just like any technology, any technological trend is just really, really fascinating me since an early age. So for me, reading the Bitcoin white paper, seeing the people running the Bitcoin site, I felt pretty confident. I never try to keep too much on the poker site at once as a way to kind of like safe gap it. But I don't know. It just, it felt fine. And also part of it was I didn't have any other alternative. So it's like, well, either I do this and kind of risk it to play online where I thrive and I'm successful or I don't play at all. And then at what point did you move out of the country? Oh man, time all blurs together. So whenever Black Friday happened, 2011, I think I played about a year in live settings, casinos. And then after that year, so around 2012 or 13, I ended up moving to Costa Rica try to get access to some of my funds and start playing online again. What was living in Costa Rica, playing online poker like for you? Oh my gosh. So we had a house on the beach. It was me and I think there were three other roommates. All of us were poker players and it was amazing. We go outside, Costa Rica, sunny, beautiful. Everyone's happy and chilling. We would grind during the day. And then in the afternoon, we go play beach volleyball, go surfing and then come back home drink Nicaraguan rum and smoke cigars. And it was wild. It was just really, really relaxed, really chill. And also being able to play poker and make a living in this paradise. I miss it. I miss it all the time. Why did it stop? Yeah. Why did it stop? (laughs) So there's a couple reasons. So essentially the poker field over the years, like I said, I kind of got in a little late after the boom was happening, kind of started to fizzle out. There's a lot more information on the game. The games got much more competitive Once the U.S. market got removed, um, playing online was just never the same. The pools were much, much smaller. I still had an edge and was able to make money, but the promise of when Americans were allowed in the market, it was not there anymore. And as AI and botting get stronger, like the game was being broken down mathematically at a much higher level than ever seen before. So even though there's bad players who consistently win, they weren't losing as much as they used to. Their edges were getting closer to break even. And so it was just much more competitive, much more cutthroat. And essentially, like at some point, little fearful, is AI just going to run poker completely and there's going to be no edge left? So that was part of it. And then also, as you start to kind of gain a reputation and people start to figure out who you are, in the early days, poker, everyone had these ego issues. Everyone was happy to challenge you, be like, oh, you think you're better than me? I'll put it all on the line and we're going to go thousands of dollars until one of us is broke. As poker progressed, as the US was removed from the market, that just didn't happen anymore. Someone recognizes that you're better than them. Okay, I'm not playing this guy. I'm sitting out right away. So for me, it got to a point where people recognize me or at least figure out my play style and realize, okay, I don't really have an edge against this player. I'm not going to play this person. So it's just not as much competition, not as much money floating around in the pool. And it's just, yeah, I was trying to think of, okay, can I do this forever? Will I be happy doing this forever? The reason I initially got into it, the freedom, the control to govern my life, have a financial income and like live freely it ended up turning to this, I have to wait for people to play me. People don't even play me. And also the financial incentive isn't as strong anymore. I remember you telling me stories about that time. And I know you started resorting to heads up poker and you had to find people to play with you. Can you tell us about that time and your experience doing that? Yeah. So when I initially got into poker, I'd play uh, six-handed games or full ring nine, nine person games. And uh, like I said, 24 to 32 tables, just always running just any time of the day I wanted to play, I could hop on, jump in and play. As poker got banned in the US, that did not become possible much later. So I had to shift six-person games and heads-up games. And heads-up is where I would say really excel. But what used to be where I could just sit down with an opponent one-on-one, kind of just battle it out and play anytime I wanted became, I just am waiting around all day. And anyone who challenges me, if they recognize that, hey, this is going to be tough, they sit me out right away. So it became this routine of just sometimes I'd wait 
10, 15 hours a day just to hope someone would play me. And when someone finally played me, just to sit out five minutes later, it'd be like, what am I doing with my life waiting around all day? Yeah. And it wasn't very fulfilling anymore in that sense. Who was the guy that you played daily? Can you tell us about that? Yeah. I don't want to really get into names, but there were a few people, regulars who would like to take their shots at me and would have a few back and forth. But I'd say most people, except very, very few people who are doing the same thing I was doing where they would sit and people would see them sitting all the time and be like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to challenge this player. They're too good. Those were the only options I had left. So there was one guy I played, we'll just call him Charlie. And Charlie, I thought I watched him, I staked his games, he sat at high stakes. I thought I had a huge edge on this fool. I ended up sitting him and he I think he took like five or six thousand from me on day one. I was like, okay, that was weird. I ran pretty bad with some of my all in EV. Like I studied my hand history. I looked at him like, okay, I didn't run so great, but I couldn't quite figure out what happened. Then day two, he crushed me for maybe around the same amount. I was like, oh my God, this guy has an edge on me, but I don't understand why. So I made it a point to myself for the, I wanted to play him the rest of the week. So I made, once I lose two buy-ins to this guy, two to four buy-ins, like I'm going to sit out for that day, study all the history and go back to it. So I essentially lost, can't remember what the numbers were, but it was around like 20 or 30 grand knowing this guy was had an edge on me, was better than me, somehow was beating me that I didn't recognize. But I felt it was a valuable lesson to learn. Like, hey, this guy has an edge on me. I don't really know why, but I can get this like valuable experience playing him, trying to understand it. And so after playing him, I spent a lot of time studying the hands, trying to see what went wrong, how he was beating me. And I would say everyone who I played after that, all of a sudden felt so much easier. And just basically making that investment towards an education, getting my ass kicked was paid off in the long run because everyone I challenged after that felt much easier. When you were tracking your EV, how are you doing the tracking, especially playing that many tables? Yeah, so there's a, oh man, I think the software is called Poker Tracker. I can't really remember. There's one more that I used that was similar, but yeah, what you do is you just load it up and if you're playing online, it literally just logs your entire hand history. So you can sort by tables. There's all these filters you can use. There's all these different statistical models you can apply. And so the main way to track EV, essentially they only measured all-in EV. So that's the only way you can get a true sense of if I'm all-in versus this opponent's all-in and both their hands are face up, we know the EV. If you don't know those cards or values, you can only speculate at what your EV is. So all-in EV was a pretty big metric, but you also had something called your red line, which is how many hands do you win without showdown? And so either you bet and they fold or you bet and they call your hand wins and they don't have to show their hands. So like you're really trying to focus on those levels. And yeah, the software was, oh my gosh, it just, it made tracking all that and going through that very easy. So before Costa Rica, you started playing poker with Bitcoin. Did you continue using Bitcoin in Costa Rica or what was that path like for you? Yeah. So for me, someone who didn't really have any job history or career background, trying to get my money from the US to overseas was a pain in the ass. Basically, if I wanted to get money from the poker sites into my U.S. bank account, that was also a pain. There were different blocks, freezes. It was just always a nightmare to try and coordinate with my bank. Like, hey, don't block this. Hey, it's not fraud. Hey, yes, let me use my money I won gambling to put in my bank account. And they're just very strict and harsh on those processes. And so, yeah, for me, living overseas, I got I got an account set up in Costa Rica. But Bitcoin was still my primary way to, one, play poker and two move around my finances because I never had to deal with banking regulation. In Costa Rica, they didn't care where the money came from. If it was Bitcoin, if it was gambling or whatever, I could just freely store it in my bank. So you quit college and started playing poker online and you started making a really good living. The government pretty much banned poker and you lost a lot of money because you're on the poker sites and you had to move out of the country. And in order for you to live in Costa Rica, your money got stuck in the banks in the US because of the government. And so you converted it into Bitcoin and brought it to Costa Rica. So was this how Bitcoin became more and more important to you? Definitely a big part of it. At least for me, it allowed me to live freely. It allowed me to continue my livelihood, even whether I was in the US or Costa Rica, I could still play poker using Bitcoin websites. If I was playing poker sites outside of the US, I had ways to basically get that money from the poker site into Bitcoin so the Bitcoin could get back to me and in a way where I could use it. So yeah, for me, Bitcoin directly improved my livelihood and allowed me to live freely. So Bitcoin in 2008, when Satoshi Nakamura's white paper came out, it was a reaction to the financial crisis, right? And a reaction to 
institutions and government and centralized control. Can you talk to us a little bit about what Satoshi Nakamura set out to do? Yeah, and we can only speculate. The first block that was ever published on the blockchain was a Times article, I believe, and it's had the date and Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. And so that being published on the first block, we can speculate that, yeah, as a touch, like, hey, look at this financial system. Hey, look at this government bailing out these banks who have failed us yet again, causing economic collapse. I think it's pretty clear that he had a message that, look, we need a way to take control back from this incompetent government and have control over our own financial freedom. So that's what I speculate Satoshi's philosophical reason behind Bitcoin is. Yeah, Bitcoin to me is just a very beautiful technology that promises freedom and innovation. Freedom and ownership over your own finances and then innovation that has spurred maybe one of the greatest technological revolutions of all time. So ideologically, yeah, Bitcoin represents a lot to me. You talk about the technology. Could you just go over what the Bitcoin technology is? Yeah, from a physical use of Bitcoin, the reason why it's so beautiful is is how it works. So Bitcoin, basic explanation is it's a digital peer-to-peer system that allows users to transact data from point A to point B. And in that transacting, they can be guaranteed that It does it in an encrypted manner, so they guarantee that it's unhackable, it's untamperable. Whatever I send, I know that the recipient will receive that exact information, that exact data, that exact amount. And also how these transactions are verified is through a network of nodes, a massive network of nodes that essentially all validate it together. And so it ends up meaning that this validation happens in a decentralized way. So there's no third party, there's no intermediary, there's no one you have to rely on to validate the transaction because the entire network is validating it. And so that means a few things like, okay, so I have complete control and ownership over my money. I don't have to worry about what a bank says. I don't have to worry about if I send this, knowing if it'll reach its destination or not. I don't have to worry if someone's taking a cut in between or trying to alter what I'm sending. It's just a very powerful notion that I have complete control over my data, over my Bitcoin. It prevents you from losing your money on poker sites. It prevents you from losing your money in bank accounts when you're trying to transfer it over to Costa Rica, right? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a real application and use for me. And I think for a lot of people, the financial crisis impacted a lot of us and it gave us insight into like, hey, our governments maybe don't always have our best interest at heart. In the US especially, like, you know, we're supposed to be this capitalist society, but capitalism is when like the individual has the ability to compete and make a product. And in that competition and making the product, hopefully the best product wins. And whatever the best product is, will be the most profitable, will win out. That's a really nice notion. But in the US, when someone competes, someone makes the best product and they fail, instead of letting them fail, letting a superior product come in and take its place and have it shot, the US government comes in and bails them out. Oh, the banks are incompetent. They failed. They crashed our whole economy. We'll just bail them out. Instead of letting banks who have been ethical, who have done the right things, you know, kind of rising up and having a chance to compete. Top businesses, top CEOs, they're making a thousand times what their next employee makes. And there's a huge financial crisis. Yeah, we'll just buy back all their stocks so they can continue to thrive while everyone else suffers. And so the financial crisis, it was really hard. It gave some transparency into like, maybe the people in control don't have our best interest at heart. So with Bitcoin, this idea that, hey, I have complete control over my financial freedom, over my finances, and the government, whenever they start failing, can't just inflate the money supply with whatever they want to keep the rich people sustained. It's just a very powerful notion that I finally have control. I don't have to worry about what the government says or not. One Bitcoin is always equal to one Bitcoin. And if I own that, no one else can. So still very early on in Bitcoin, when people were still trying to figure it out, I didn't really know much about Bitcoin at this time, but I read a lot of news about the Silk Road, right? And there's a lot of things about Silk Road. The founder tried to kill someone and that's why it got closed down. And then this is where you buy drugs, but I didn't really have any firsthand experience with Silk Road. Can you tell us about Silk Road and the importance at that time? Yeah, so Silk Road and Bitcoin are pretty synonymous, I would say, especially early on. Silk Road is really interesting. For those who don't know, Silk Road is a marketplace similar to like Amazon where you can buy goods. And the main good on Silk Road was illegal drugs. They had other stuff they sold too, but the main focus was an illegal drug market. It really interested me primarily because, hey, there's this marketplace that's existing. People are buying and transacting goods here, illegal goods. So they have some sort of confidence that, 
hey, I have relative anonymity or I'm safe or I feel confident enough to use this marketplace. And so to me, the main interesting thing about Silk Road was how do all these people feel so comfortable and secure doing these illicit activities without like, are they fearful? Like, do they feel safe doing it? Like, it's just fascinated me. And also this idea of like, hey, the government is telling us what is legal or not legal, but other people have notions of maybe the government also doesn't know what they're talking about here. The war on drugs in the US is like a huge failure, in my opinion. And it's a very fear-based approach instead of informational approach. If you're going to use or try these things, here's how you do it safely. And here's how you reduce potential harm. And so Silk Road was kind of a place that facilitated buying and selling of drugs, but also in a safer way than what I would say exists in like a traditional black market. How do you even get onto Silk Road? And how do you hide your identity in order to get on? For anyone who's an expert, they'll know that this is not the surefire way to do it. But from a basic point of view, you can download something or you have to use something called the Tor network. And the Tor network is essentially a relay of IP addresses. So when I sign on to the Tor network, it knows my entry point and IP address. And what it does is it bounces it through a bunch of different relays and nodes. That essentially turns it into all these other various IP addresses. So it's very hard to trace back to the origin or the root. And so through Tor, you have a sense of anonymity and protection that you can use Tor and you can access Silk Road and have relative confidence that you'll remain secure. Now, once you get onto Silk Road, I know there's a lot of conversation between the users on Silk Road. Who are the people that are using it and what kind of conversations are going on? Yeah. And to me, that was the sociological aspect of Silk Road was actually maybe the most fascinating thing to me. You had people from all walks of life. So you have, of course, people who are selling drugs, your drug dealers, gangsters. You also have people who are trying to remain anonymous because maybe they engage in some other dark activities like pedophiles. But then you have just people from other walks of life who are also interested in this anonymous marketplace being facilitated by Bitcoin, just trying to understand what it's all about. You have journalists, you have cryptographers, you have medical professionals who maybe in their day-to-day practice, sometimes they're familiar with drugs and maybe they don't share the same views that all drugs should be illegal too. And so you just, you end up getting journalists, you get a wide range of people from all walks of life and sharing their insight and wisdom on Silk Road. To me, that was very interesting. I would say a common thread between a lot of these people is obviously if you're doing something illegal, you're afraid that you may be persecuted or caught. But even people who aren't doing necessarily anything illegal, but might have controversial views, whether it's a journalist or a medical professional who, hey, I did some research on mushrooms or MDMA, and I realized that there's some therapeutic uses here, PTSD or relationship therapy. There's actually a lot of positive that being gained from it, but maybe they're afraid to publish that because they'll be ostracized in their professional community. So Silk Road had this form where everyone could share these discussions, could share their research, could share their views and insights, could help people who really wanted to stay secure and anonymous provide in-depth tutorials on how to do it. And so it's just this collection of just all these really, really smart minds who may be fearful to speak out in their day-to-day, but through Silk Road, through the Silk Road forms, they had a place where they could do it with confidentiality and free of being judged or ostracized. Like you said, a lot of the drugs that were originally illegal are being legalized, right? Whether it's weed or MDMA or psilocybin, there's a lot of stuff right now that's going on that is decriminalizing a lot of these drugs. But before that, there was a lot of heavy-handed government regulation that was pretty racist, right? And oh yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Well, so like, oh man, yeah, and this is why Silk Road, oh, it's also beautiful. Everything Bitcoin inspires is beautiful. <sighs> okay. First, for drug laws, the easiest, most basic one is to look at crack versus cocaine penalties. Crack and cocaine are the same substance. They both use cocaine. Crack is just cocaine and baking soda. So it's a little more potent, but the allele compound is cocaine. But for whatever reason, Reagan era, they made the penalties for crack versus cocaine, I believe it was like 100 times more severe. You could have a gram of crack and you get 20 years jail time, where if you have a gram of cocaine, it's like usually a slap on the wrist or maybe a year or less of jail time or something. I don't know if those numbers are exact, but it's not too far of a stretch that the discrepancy was very different. And these crack laws, you found that a lot of areas, minority communities were being disproportionately affected by these jail time by these harsh penalties. And 
affluent people getting in trouble with cocaine is more looked at as like a white collar crime, not such a harsh penalty. So, and that's just touching on the surface. There's a lot more arguments to be made about, yeah, the racism of drug laws. You know, weed has a lot of different arguments too. But yeah, essentially these prison systems and these drug laws, they really try to instill fear. And once they put you into the system, once you enter the system, it's really, really hard to escape, especially in the U.S. We don't really focus on rehabilitation. We focus on, hey, you did something that the government says is wrong and your life is over now. You cannot integrate with the system as a normal member of society afterward. This idea of locking everyone away and not allowing people to rehab or reform is a very, it's a very harsh approach. So you go on Silk Road and there's a lot of things that you can buy, right? How do you know what you're getting is legitimate? The other point that I wanted to touch on too with drug laws is one, you know what you're getting because there's a review system. So kind of like Amazon or Airbnb, after you buy a product or after you stay at a place, you can leave a review. And in these reviews, you can talk about the quality of the substance. You can talk about the speed, the stealth, the community, the vendor used, how reliable they are. And so you really get a sense of who is doing a good job, who's providing pure and safe stuff, who has sending it in a way that it's going to be safe and reliable. One of the benefits of this is when you have this system where you can rate and judge different vendors and you can have a sense of quality and reliability, people feel much safer doing this stuff online. It removes the black market presence in the real world when you can do this online. So violence that happens in the real world around all these activities, it can be very dangerous. You go to a shady part of town, you meet with someone you don't know, you don't know if they're going to rob you, kill you, whatever. You know, that's extreme, but it's happened. And also, you never know if what you're getting is pure or if it's cut with something. If you end up taking one of these substances you get on the street, will you end up in the hospital a few hours later? There's no real easy gauge in the real world. But when you have this online system where these ratings and reviews, it keeps people accountable and it maintains a certain quality where you don't have to venture out into the real world where it's potentially dangerous to acquire these substances. It also creates competition then, yeah. it sounds like, right? Yeah. Surprisingly, right? Not something you would normally think about. I guess I just don't think about that world too much. But once it's transparent, I mean, it's almost like bringing a marketplace online that tech was doing, even the legal or illegal, right? It's just bringing a marketplace online. And then that automatically creates uh, clarity, choice, differentiation, maybe like the cannabis industry now. They have so many different strains and just because it's become legal. It's pretty interesting. I'm sure there's also an education component too, right? In order to prove that yours is better than others, you have to educate consumers on why it's better or why it's safer. Oh my gosh, that's such a, both very good points. And yeah, it's exactly that. Why is it safer? Why is this vendor better? Why is their quality better than everyone else's? And like you said, people are competing to share that information to educate and let you know, mine is better because of this, because it's cleaner, because it's pure, because it's safer. Because if you use it in this way, you'll have the best time. You won't overdose, you won't get hurt. There's a lot of competition to increase the value of the product. And there's also a lot of incentive to educate the users of your product and let them know what they're doing is safer, more reliable, more fun, more expansive than their competitors. How did Silk Road ended up getting shut down? At the time, Ross Ulbrich, who we knew as Dread Pirate Roberts, his inner circle was infiltrated by an FBI agent. And this FBI agent essentially entrapped him, essentially said that, hey, there's people who know about how to bring down Silk Road, what you need to do is you need to assassinate this person and I can carry out the assassination. So it's kind of unclear. I don't know what the real truth is, but it seems like Ross ordered a hit on someone and the hit never happened. It was an FBI agent he was dealing with. But through that, they were able to build a case on Ross. How he actually got caught was just he was at a public library in San Francisco and they had somehow traced where he was. There was some identifying information online that allowed the feds with high confidence to ascertain his identity. But yeah, essentially they raided him, caught him, and then really wanted to make an example after they caught him and gave him an extremely, extremely harsh penalty that essentially he was entrapped by a corrupt FBI agent who also, I don't know if that FBI agent got jail time or what, but he was known to stole some Bitcoin and also was not too ethical in how he dealt with the case. So what happened to everyone that was on Silk Road? Yeah, so it was very reminiscent of my poker days, but essentially you try to connect. There is a message from the Department of Justice, also stamped with FBI and different U.S. agencies and says, this domain has been seized. All your base are belong to us sort of thing. And just stop doing this stuff and it's taken down forever. That was very traumatic for me, just 
very reminiscent of poker, but it had this unfortunate consequence that after that happened, people weren't really sure. This information about Ross, it was found out much later, but at the time, no one knew if there was a break in tour, if some security practices in place weren't secure, how many people using Silk Road were in trouble, how many people didn't use PGP or proper encryption when sending messages or transactions. And so there's a lot of fear in the dark web and a lot of fear around, am I actually secure? Am I actually anonymous? What does that mean? And so after that, the community that formed around Silk Road, like the Silk Road forums and just all these professionals from all walks of life gathering together, that magic, that sharing of information just dissipated and it has never been able to recreate itself. And there were many marketplaces that try to come after Silk Road, but a lot of different scams, people would just, once they established a base and made enough money, would just leave with all their customers' funds. There's just people never really felt safe conversing on forums. They weren't sure if their identities were at risk or their security. And so Silk Road was an amazing organic first experience that utilized Bitcoin that showed this marketplace could operate outside of the system. And once that was gone, you know, it still goes on today. There's still marketplaces today, but it's just, I will say, never quite felt the same, never quite felt as safe or exciting as the first one. And the reason why is because most people are now thinking that they're being tracked by the government. It's just knowing that like, hey, the government does care about this stuff hey, anything I'm saying, if I'm not using absolute perfect security, perfect practices, if I'm not being super safe, eventually that can be traced back to me. After Snowden leaked some of the information that, hey, the NSA essentially runs the internet, they're monitoring everything, they literally know every single thing you do on the internet, this is very scary for a lot of people. Most people, you hear that and you can't really process what that means, but all it really means is to truly stay anonymous and safe, you have to take many, many, many steps. And it's not so easy for the common person. It's not an ideal user experience. So yeah, there's just not that same comfortability. There's not that same safeness. You can still be secure and safe, but it's a lot harder to know if you're doing everything you need to do. So what did Snowden find out? And actually what happened to Snowden? Yeah, so Snowden's been living in exile of sorts in Russia and supposedly doing fine. I don't know exactly everything he leaked, just that it entailed like, hey, the scope of what the NSA monitors and what they're tracking in your phone conversations, in your internet browsing is much more severe than anyone could have ever expected or anticipated. It's literally everything. And even if you're using stuff like Tor stuff to safeguard yourself, the NSA has a way to create fingerprints of their users. So they can recognize by how you browse different websites. Like, hey, I always log on to Facebook. And then after Facebook, I go play a game of chess at chess.com. And so like, there's these different habits that we do when we're online that is very consistent, even if we're using the dark web, that the NSA has a way to track those behaviors and then create a fingerprint from it. So they can identify you, even if they don't know your exact identity, they know your fingerprint profile and can have that information on you. So let's go back to your time in Costa Rica. At this point in time, you're trying to squeeze every dollar out of people because no one will play you anymore. You're staying up for 15 hours at a time, just waiting for someone to play you. And it's really hard to make any money. So what did you end up doing with your career after that? Yeah, so I think when I made the transition to switch from poker, I assessed that, hey, I can still be profitable doing this for the next three to five years, maybe. But after that, I don't really know if I'll have made enough to retire and just enjoy my life. And so I really wanted to look for a way like, hey, what builds on some of the skills that poker taps into? What builds into human psychology, trying to understand patterns and behavior in complex systems, and then using different research or statistics to break down those systems and have research-backed data that helps you make your decisions. And so a very natural path for me was user experience design. It utilized a lot of the same skills. In poker, we have different profiles we assign to people based on their playing habits. So like if someone's very tight and aggressive, we might call that player a shark. If someone's very loose and aggressive, we might call that person a bomb or maniac. And so in a sense, you're creating these different profiles based on how players play. In user experience design, you do something very similar to that. You create personas, trying to understand, hey, I have a product. How does my user interact through that product? What are their habits when using this product? So you try to understand those profiles, you try to understand the psychology behind those decisions. And then from that, you create a strategy to improve the user's life or in poker to destroy that user's life. So anyway, it's just, yeah, a similar skill set and yeah, ended up in user experience design. So what did you work on as a user experience designer? Uh, yeah, so initially I took a boot camp, which helped me hone my skills as a UX designer, just 
exposed me to all the different tools that UX designers have. And very shortly after that, I worked on a few small projects and then pretty quickly got into a Bitcoin startup in Los Angeles, where it was the best of both worlds, looking for a user experience designer who is interested in growing Bitcoin and crypto. And so just a perfect match. And uh, yeah, ended up there. We look at crypto today and the user experience is terrible, right? But I'm sure at that time, which was what, 2017 or 2017, yeah. Bitcoin and crypto user experience was worse. What were the problems with Bitcoin at the time and what were you trying to solve? Yeah. So Bitcoin, now there's hundreds, thousands of cryptos. At the time, there were a lot of cryptos coming up, but Bitcoin was still seen as the main one, Bitcoin and ETH. And yeah, all these cryptos were kind of in response to why Bitcoin was failing. All these cryptos were being developed to address the pain points of Bitcoin. And the major pain points were Bitcoin's promises individual freedom and financial sovereignty, but I can't use it because transaction times are so slow. It takes me an hour just to have a transaction confirmed. Transaction fees are too expensive. If I want to send $5, I have to pay $20 just to have that transaction sent. It doesn't make any sense. And then also the price is just very volatile. It fluctuates like crazy. I can't reliably expect to hold Bitcoin and know that it's going to have a similar value the next day. So how can I use this as a day-to-day currency when it can wildly fluctuate on a day-to-day basis? So I, I would say those are the main pain points. How did OpenNode try to solve those pain points? At OpenNode, we are all pretty hardcore Bitcoiners and really wanted to understand how do we make this usable? We think it's the future. How do we convince everyone else it's the future too? And so there are a few technologies being developed on Bitcoin to try and improve the user experience. One of them, probably the one with the most potential, is a second layer a protocol called the Lightning Network. What the Lightning Network does is essentially allows Bitcoin to transact instantaneously, so no transaction times. The fees associated with each transaction are like less than a fraction of a cent. So very, very cheap to send these transactions. And also the amount of transactions you can process per second are over millions. So you can have, in essence, tons of transactions happen at once, and you can also have them be microtransactions. So transactions less than a cent, you can just fire them off. And so the Lightning Network, it gave a way to address all the slowness and clunkiness of Bitcoin and remove it. Was it an L2? It is a layer two technology, yeah. Okay. Built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. That's just like the technological point from how Lightning can improve the Bitcoin experience. At OpenNode, we wanted to take that technology and expand upon it. So another important aspect is dealing with the price volatility. Because Bitcoin takes so long to settle, Lightning can make it settle instantaneously. But not everyone wants to deal with that volatility. Um, But because of Lightning Network, we looked to partner with a bank who could essentially when users make transactions, they can choose to settle it in fiat or Bitcoin. So in essence, they wouldn't have to deal with the price volatility if they didn't want to. So OpenNode now allows any vendor, for example, Shopify or Substack or even McDonald's in Venezuela or El Salvador to take Bitcoin payments, right? And so now it's become kind of like payment platform for Bitcoin. Correct. Yeah, it's a payment platform for Bitcoin, utilizing the Lightning Network to reduce all pain points around Bitcoin. The philosophy we had at OpenNode when I was there was, if we can get Bitcoin in users' hands, so it's easy to use as a credit card or PayPal, where they don't have to think about any of the technology behind it. It's just as easy as in their e-commerce store, adding an option for buying Bitcoin. And so the user can choose to buy in Bitcoin or not. If we can create that experience for vendors, at point of sale physical vendors or online vendors and get people to use it in everyday transactions, this is how we start increasing adoption, how we get people familiar with it and comfortable with it. Yeah, that was a main focus. And I still believe that the more people who use it for day-to-day transactions, the more chance Bitcoin has to succeed. So I think our most interesting conversations, in my opinion, are conversations around Bitcoin versus Ethereum or other cryptos, right? I come at it in a different light. I come at it during 2016, 2017, when Ethereum was created and started getting more popular because I am more of a technology platform person. And obviously, you came into crypto a little bit earlier. You got the aha moment earlier because you got effed by all these centralized government stuff, right? And so Bitcoin is really important to you because it affects your life. So can you tell us why Bitcoin is the best crypto and why you care about it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those are definitely my words, but yeah, I appreciate you using them. Man, Bitcoin is so amazing because it had this organic formation, like an immaculate conception of sorts, where there's an anonymous 
creator or group of creators, Satoshi Nakamoto. And no one really knows who this person or these people are. And there's no real early organization that is still around from when Bitcoin was formed. There's no one who is massively profiting or benefiting or dictating the direction that Bitcoin will go. It's open source, which means anyone can contribute, look at it. It's the longest standing blockchain, which just means it's been stress tested a thousand fold any other crypto. So it has the most volume, it has the most transactions, and people have used it the most. So it's withstood hacks, it's withstood forks, all these people like Roger Ver and Bitcoin Cash saying, hey, Bitcoin is too clunky. The block size isn't big enough. We need Bitcoin Cash. This is the true Bitcoin. All these forks, all these battles against Bitcoin have failed. It stood the test of time. It's the longest standing blockchain and has the highest transaction volume, highest liquidity. And it's just the most reliable in that sense. It's like the foundation of all of crypto. And these other technologies are really great because they bring a lot of innovation. They bring a lot of money into the space. But when anyone's scared of what will happen or anyone's looking for what's reliable and like market interest isn't there, everyone will go back to Bitcoin and look at Bitcoin first, see how is Bitcoin doing, looking to Bitcoin to know for guidance, basically. Let's talk a little bit about how other cryptocurrencies are more centralized, right? Let's talk a little bit about that. Bitcoin is also completely decentralized. Like I said, there's no real like oversight committee. So something like Ethereum with Vitalik and their board, it's like, hey, the SEC sends them a letter. They have to comply or they can face harsh penalties and sanctions. Pretty much every crypto after Bitcoin is in a similar boat. There's some group of founders there's some organization who stands to profit. They take 20 or 30 percent of the pool. And there's all these financial incentives that benefit the founders. And so there's not the same accountability. Like these founders, they can essentially market a product, make a ton of money right away and have no consequences if they don't deliver. Bitcoin doesn't have any of that. It's just a protocol that exists. It's decentralized and people can use it as a reliable store of value and to transact without any worry. And one of my big arguments is that with these layer twos like Lightning and Liquid and some other platforms that enable smart contracts on the Bitcoin blockchain, Essentially, once Bitcoin can do what all these other cryptocurrencies can do, once Bitcoin can facilitate an NFT network, once Bitcoin can facilitate smart contracts, once Bitcoin can facilitate frictionless and fee-less transactions, like what is the point of all these other cryptos? And so once Bitcoin can do all of that, then I see essentially the use case of so many cryptos just disappearing. Can Bitcoin do that? Yeah, one of the drawbacks of Bitcoin is that because it doesn't have these founders, it doesn't have these initial board groups who have all the say, is that there's not as much money invested in it. Like, who do you invest money to make the, build up the Bitcoin protocol when the investors aren't going to see a direct return on that? There's not the same financial incentives to develop these technologies. But as Bitcoin gains more legitimacy and people are realizing, yeah, Bitcoin's the ultimate blockchain or whatever, you know, there's a lot more interest in, hey, how do we get in on Bitcoin? How do we build up the network? How do we make it more robust? Actually, one of the first major investments I saw, I think it just happened a few weeks ago, there was a $150 million investment into a company that is focusing on these exact things like NFT, smart contract networks, all on the Bitcoin blockchain. And three, four years ago, man, thinking of that, it was just unheard of. No one cared about Bitcoin. Everyone was interested in ICOs and the next big thing. And Anyway, my point is that, yeah, Bitcoin can't do that yet, but there is a lot more interest than there was even a few years ago. And people are starting to build these on the Bitcoin blockchain because they realize, hey, this is the most secure and the most reliable chain. Help me understand, because Bitcoin has no leader, it's very decentralized. I can't see the comparison between Ethereum, right? Because Ethereum has a foundation, they're changing the code, they're getting approvals. So you do have these improvement proposals where they're adding ERC-721, a non-fungible token. So they're adding more and more layers in Ethereum. So how does Bitcoin go through that process and changing? Because isn't it basically just set? Yeah, some people might look at that and be like, oh, it's so slow, it will never change. But I guess from an investor or someone who is trying to allocate wealth into a risky asset, when you look at that, hey, Bitcoin is so slow to change. It is very, very similar to how it was when it was first created. And it's still secure, it's still standing strong. It's still the foundation. I guess that resilience and that slowness to change is actually a huge strength. That means when things are built on top of it, it'll be backed by an even stronger foundation. So it might take longer overall for all that to come together. But once it comes together, it'll really be solidified and secured. Let's talk a little bit about Michael Saylor. Who is he? And what is he about? 
Oh my gosh. So if you read Michael Saylor's Twitter, you might think he's deranged. He's unhinged. He's just this crazy evangelical Bitcoiner who had a lot of money, 500 million, just started investing in Bitcoin. And so when I was first looking at this guy and reading his Twitter, I thought he was crazy. I thought maybe he's not the best advocate we want for Bitcoin. I don't like really know what his deal is, but recently I heard a podcast. He was on Podcast Up Only TV run by a Kobe and Ledger status in the Twitter space. And after listening to him, I realized this guy is actually very, very smart. He looks at Bitcoin more from the economical standpoint versus the technological standpoint. And so a lot of his reasons for investing is based on economic pressures versus in it for the tech. So Michael Saylor, he owns a company called MicroStrategy, which is a software company. And I don't know exactly what kind of software they develop, but they've been profitable for many years. They're one of the last companies that's still around in their space and essentially had this huge treasury of $500 million that was just sitting and they weren't really sure what to do with it. And Michael Saylor's approach was like, hey, I have this huge chunk of cash. I can invest it in the S&P, which has had good returns. But as inflation rises, my huge reserve, it just stays the same. If there's ever a crash or whatever, then this money gets devalued. The other aspect of that is, hey, if my company is profitable every year, let's say I have 20% profit margins. So I do that three or four years in a row. It's great. Stock price is good. Money's in the S&P. It's growing and we're making profit. But what happens on the next year when you have a down year or you don't make that same 20% profit? All of a sudden, your stock prices tank. Investors look like not trying to wonder what happened. To sustain that high productivity and output can be very difficult. If inflation is also rising, then you're potentially losing money. And so Michael Saylor's approach was like, okay, you know, I can't really rely on, I want to be profitable. I want to put out a good product. I want to beat inflation, but being in the S&P is just enough to compete or barely outpace it. I want an asset class that can actually basically outpace all that where I don't have to worry and there's huge profit potential because the alternative is just to have it slowly be devalued over time or to take a risk and see if I can actually grow it. And so that's kind of where he saw Bitcoin. And Bitcoin, he's really adamant about because the technology enables it and makes it what it is. But his outlook is that because Bitcoin is what it is, all it will take is as it gets more popular. Uh, right now, I think the market cap is around $1 trillion or so. But as Bitcoin gets more popular, it just takes a group of very rich people, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, or maybe like some princes in Dubai, or maybe a nation state. You know, people have like $50 billion, $500 billion plus to allocate. And all it takes is one of them going like, hey, I just want to put 2 or 3% of my worth or of our group's worth into this cryptocurrency. And when they're looking to get into cryptocurrency and they want stability and they just want to maintain or grow wealth, Bitcoin is going to be what jumps them. So if they do that, Bitcoin can jump up to $10 trillion overnight market cap. And for Sailor, he doesn't care if he's buying at $60,000 at the top or $40,000, $20,000. He's just buying all the time. And because he truly believes that Bitcoin will be over 100000 So pretty much no matter where he buys, he feels like it's a good decision. And the reason why he's buying Bitcoin instead of keeping it in cash is because cash, inflation is basically when the government prints out money, right? And so the supply continues to grow and the demand is still the same. So that's why money, cash gets lower in value. Whereas Bitcoin, there's only 21 million Bitcoin, is Correct. that right? Yeah. And there's always only going to be 21 million Bitcoin because that's written in the code. So that's never going to change. Yeah. But because financial institutions are now onboarding more and more people, people that don't know about Bitcoin or people that don't know how to get into crypto, whether it's in their cash app or PayPal or Roth IRAs, there's going to be more and more demand with Bitcoin, but a limited, always a finite supply. Yeah. I mean, well said. And that's uh, definitely one of the draws, especially hey, the government can print money whenever they want. Hey, they have control over the markets and inflation. And how do we compete against that? And gold has traditionally been the hedge, but gold is this clunky, heavy metal that when you own gold, you don't even have the gold in your house. You have a certificate that says you own the gold. Someone else holds the gold for you. They say you own gold, but you don't actually own gold. So, you know, a lot of our generation, newer generations are very digital and Bitcoin is seen as this store of value, this digital gold, this digital property that I have control over and it serves more of a purpose to me than physical gold would. So where are we in crypto adoption right now? I'd say we're in the early stages, but kind of how all innovation or trends work is it's very, very slow in the early stages. Usually it takes a while to build up a base to get people familiar and to start using 
then once it hits a critical point, a tipping point, then it just accelerates out of control. It goes parabolic. We're kind of in the early foundational stages of crypto, but I think we're getting to a point where we're getting close to a tipping point. El Salvador just adopted Bitcoin as its national currency. Other countries are looking to do the same. Elon Musk is very adamant about being a Bitcoin holder. These are the first people to do it. You know, they look kind of crazy. Everyone's uncertain. But as soon as the second person or third person start jumping on, it kind of creates a chain reaction. So even though I think we're early, I think we're close to a point where it's going to be integrated in our lives sooner rather than later. Why did El Salvador take Bitcoin as a national currency? I think it's because a lot of countries are kind of at the mercy of whatever the U.S. does, what their GDP does. If the U.S. racks up $30 trillion of debt and decides to inflate the monetary supply indefinitely, it has kind of a negative ripple effect through the rest of the world. The U.S. isn't responsible alone. It's all the people in power, all the people who control wealth. But some of these smaller countries are at risk to whatever the powers that be decide. And so even if they have a stable currency and could get devalued by other global currencies without much recourse. And so these smaller countries that don't have as much people or may already be struggling with financial issues, they have more incentive to kind of, hey, can this Bitcoin standard really work? Can we detach out of the system and have a currency that will sustain its value without fear of it being overinflated or debt getting racked up. And so I think there's a lot of incentives to kind of see how can we break away from the global system and keep with a more true and pure system. And also because of the size of El Salvador, you know, they're kind of in a position where they can take on this risk and try it. Just to give a little bit of history, when Japan and Germany went to war in World War II, the biggest reason why they wanted to do it was colonialism. Basically, they didn't have access to colonies. And that was the way that people or empires made money at that time. And so in order for them to build out the colonies, they were trying to take over different land. And then the allies and the U.S. mainly stopped that. And when they won the war, the U.S. pretty much said, okay, we'll allow you to, to trade with anybody. You don't have to have a military to protect your trade, your cargo from place to place. We'll basically use our Navy to protect all trade routes. But in order for us to do that, you have to take on the U.S. dollar as, as the middleman. So now the global system, every single country, when they're trading between each other, they first have to convert it into the US dollars and then convert it back into the, the other currency. So it's very expensive for every single country to actually trade with each other because the US dollar is always in the middle. So if the US government decides to just inflate the dollar where it's now valueless, everyone's kind of fucked, right? And so that's pretty much probably why these smaller countries are trying to get off of the US dollar. Yeah, man, that's a very insightful and well said. The other side of it, too, is they believe Bitcoin will go up in value. Also, the innovation and technology that Bitcoin promotes and promises, like, hey, we can bring interest to our country. We can get people coming here. We can shape Bitcoin policy. Okay, Bitcoin is not energy efficient. How do we do it so it's sustainable and natural? And, you know, there's just a lot of excitement, a lot of new jobs, a lot of interest that it, it can bring by kind of adopting this Bitcoin standard. So from 2011 to now, you've been through... A lot of ups and downs, right? Bitcoin has been made you happy. Bitcoin has made you <laughs> depressed, right? Because there's so many bull and bear markets and you've been through all of it. So are you scared of the next bear market? Yeah, bear markets and bull markets are pretty interesting. Bull markets are very exciting. Everything goes up. You can just have an idea and speculation drives the price of that idea like crazy. And so you don't actually really need any tangible value. And in order to have something valued, at a very high amount or make money. And so a lot of people are excited by the bull markets because that's when all the interest is, that's when you get the most money, that's when you get a lot of talented people with eyes on it trying to make a difference and get a piece. So the bull markets are exciting and great. The bear markets, though, are the balance to that. When the bear markets happen, all the speculation evaporates because it's like, okay, these speculative assets are good and all, but they're not actually producing anything. As everything's devaluing, like I need something that's tangible. I need something with real value. So to me, bear markets are kind of a way to flush out all the nonsense and noise. You probably lose some good ideas and innovation too. But for the most part, I think it's a really great equalizer in that anything with no value and junk usually disappears. So for me, bear markets are a great time where if you truly believe in your product, you truly believe in your idea, that's where you focus and you just work on it. You don't worry about the price. That's when you can actually build and Essentially, the better you do, 
you set yourself up for the next cycle and the next bull cycle to be more glorious. So bear markets to me, I'm not worried. I truly believe in this technology. I think it's here for the long term. I don't really see anything challenging in the next 10 or 20 years. So right now, whether it's a bull or bear cycle, it doesn't really impact me or hopefully doesn't impact people too much. And you know, hopefully, if it's something they're passionate and believe in, they can keep working through how much does your experience from poker still drive your decision making? So much of what poker is for me is it's about how you play the game. So it's the competitiveness. It's trying to pit yourself against someone else and really get into their psyche, really understand their behavior and why they're making the decisions they are. So to me, it's a lot about the behavior, the psychology, and the competitiveness of poker, which drew me to it. And I would say that's just very natural within my personality and how I approach things day to day. And so because of that drive, because of that focus, it carries over into everything I do. And so with Bitcoin, it's this competitive technology that's saying, hey, everyone is starting to think that this might have a chance to really change the world. And so for me, anything that promises that that's going to be the leading or the forefront, I want to be behind it. I want to understand it. I want to compete with it. I want to participate with it. So I would say in that way, it's not so much about what poker is as much as like kind of the characteristics that help bring out in myself. Yeah. Do you find yourself measuring who's winning then regularly and easily? Right? Because it's like the expected value piece. I'm sure people have seen the equations. It can get the same software that you've seen, but you really apply it, right? And you're applying it maybe most viscerally if you're playing one-on-one because it becomes very obvious to you. So do you bring that same level of analysis to say Bitcoin and is it winning? What do you find interesting to measure nowadays? How do you measure winning? What are you looking at? What are you paying attention to about who's winning or losing? To me, winning isn't so much about who's in the lead or who did the best in this instance. Winning is about a consistent model that over time, the best decisions are made. Sometimes when the best decisions are made or you try to take all the information you have available to you and you assign a probability to it and probability of success, then you try to engage in it. You try to see if it plays out. So even if you're consistently making the best decisions with high probability, you won't always come out the victor. Sometimes the odds just don't work out that way. So to me, winning isn't necessarily about who's on top at the end of it. It's more about What kind of good decisions can I make consistently over a long sustained period where over time, my expected value is going to be this upward slope? And so I guess it's like for me in the crypto space, Bitcoin is continuing to do the right thing. It's not trying to overexpand to what it's not. It's staying true to its roots. People are building on top of it. They're stress testing it like crazy, really trying to have it be reliable. A lot of the stuff in DeFi, it's really exciting and new, but It doesn't have the same longevity, doesn't have the same resilience or security. It's still prone to a lot of flaws, a lot of errors. I mean, Ethereum is still trying to figure out what kind of protocol it wants to be and how to go about it. And so to me, there's a lot of these cryptos that promise new and exciting things, but it's not even the same sphere of competition of Bitcoin. Bitcoin has proven itself time and time again, and nothing has really lived up to that. So even if a new alternative cryptocurrency or DeFi currency is very popular in outpacing Bitcoin, to me, that's not necessarily winning. It's winning a battle, but not necessarily the war or the overall picture. Yeah. No, no, no. That makes good sense. What about outside of crypto? What do you find in an area of interest that something's a competitor or a product stands out to you because they're making these consistently better bets? I kind of look at our society as a whole and civilization and like, where are we struggling? We have environmental issues. We have financial issues. We have issues of inefficiency in the workforce. And so what are these new technologies that are promising to help make a difference? You know, like electric vehicles, AI, genomics cryptocurrencies. I guess all these fields, all these technological fields really, really interest me and stand out as if I had a bet on what's going to dominate the human psyche and drive innovation for better cultural and societal change, it would be within these sectors. Someone like Elon Musk and Tesla, very polarizing person. And I have a lot of mixed feelings about him, but just very early on, he made this commitment. I want to explore renewable energy. I want to intergalactic colonialism. He just really, really put all his effort and heart behind it. And there's so many billionaires in the world. And I can't think of another who's done the same for like 
renewable energy that he has or brought this kind of attention to it. So I wish there were more billionaires or more people in power, especially if we're talking about renewables, like these oil industries who have these legacy industries that have been dominant for so long. It'd be so easy for them to maintain their industry while also focusing on like, hey, we acknowledge that fossil fuels aren't always good. They are the most efficient we have right now, but we're going to start branching into these renewable energies. So I wish some of these bigger companies or some of these people with power would look more instead of maintaining their power, how can they grow it and expand it in a way that benefits humanity? That was helpful. And then I also thought it was pretty interesting because we opened with Silk Road being how transparency can shape and build a market and competition. And you potentially just ended with the end state of a market. So when a company is killing it, how can they actually shift to start innovating more and building upon what's next and how difficult it is. So pretty interesting. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great way to put it. And I think as there is more transparency, the internet has enabled communication at insane levels. And there's so much misinformation, but you can also find the true information if you know where to look or how to look. And so I just wish that people should be looking for, in my opinion, solutions that can do real human good. We know what has done harm. We know what hasn't worked. Like Instead of focusing on profits and instead of focusing on how can I crush everyone and get ahead, how can we work together? How can we bring everyone up? Where is the future and like what is going to enable us to live better, healthier lives? And I think that that's why you and I get along, Sean, because I think that we both see technology as a means to solve a lot of problems. And that's why I think we both believe in cryptocurrency. And I think that's why we both believe in Elon Musk. (laughs) There's definitely a lot of optimism in the way that we think. And I think Bitcoin and Ethereum and what people are trying to do with Web3 is a possible solution to some of the problems that we're facing. Obviously, it introduces new problems, right? Mm -hmm. It introduces climate change problems. It introduces possible wealth inequality problems. It introduces a lot more problems. But at the same time, people are trying to solve our current problems with technology, which I'm also a big fan of. Yeah. Hell yeah. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Sean. This is an amazing conversation. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Will. Thanks, Andrew. Had a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it to the end of the episode. You can find show notes, links, and contact info for us and our guests at our website, willandlee.show. We love feedback, so please feel free to drop us a note with any thoughts or suggestions. Lastly, if you like what you heard, we'd really appreciate you adding ratings to our episodes. Thanks for listening. Until next time.